The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, my wife Rochelle and I are on the tail end of teaching our youngest daughter, who is 16, how to drive. And teaching her how to drive literally has been driving me crazy. Our daughter is at that age where she is really eager to get her driver's license. And some of you remember what it was like to be that age. Like you couldn't wait to get your driver's license because for you that represented a measure of freedom that you could go and come and do and all of that. And she has all of that. She says, I can just go wherever I wanna go. And I think, who says you can go wherever you wanna go? (laughs) We have a car at our house that's just sitting there for a third driver who lives in our house. And she keeps saying, I can't wait till I can drive my car. And I keep reminding her, like her phone and her room and everything else, that's not your car, that's my car. But she wants to drive. And we've been teaching her how to drive. And as eager as she is to drive, there is a secret that all parents of teenagers know. As eager as they are to drive, we are even more eager for them to drive. Because I am tired. Over at Westside, I said that and a lady said, preach. And I was like, that's the best amen I've ever gotten in my life. Because I am tired of carting her around everywhere. Like I have spent my last Saturday night sitting outside a Whataburger waiting for her to finish up with her friends and thinking to myself, this child does not know I have to work in the morning. And I'm a good husband. I don't want my wife sitting in a parking lot in the middle of the night. Like I'm ready for her to go. And people say, but man, it's so sad. When they turn 16, they start driving, they leave home. And I'm like, that's what I want. I want her to leave home. (laughs) And so as eager as I've been for her to learn how to drive, I did not want to teach her how to drive. My brother taught me how to drive. My parents didn't teach me how to drive. But I remember when my mother taught my brother how to drive. And for this very short, mostly pious woman who did not speak this way very often, to unfurl the litany of profanities that she did as she taught my brother how to drive, like I did not want that. So I went to her and I said, Kate, here's what you need to do. Uh, You're gonna go to a driving school. I want you to go to a driving school. And we looked and we couldn't find anything because she's got theater and choir and a bunch of other things and nothing really fit. So I was gonna have to teach her how to drive. And then I remembered what you all said. And that was my mistake. Because in the seven years, that our family has been a part of this community, multiple ones of you have come to us and said, we love your family so much. We love your girls. If there's ever anything that we can do, (laughs) let us know. And so I thought I will ask one of them to teach her how to drive. And you all said no. Every one of you said no that I asked. 
And I wasn't all that shocked that people said no. I was shocked by why you all said no. And you know who I'm talking about. It was this. Well, I want to keep a good relationship with her. And I thought, I want to keep a good relationship with her. Like no 35-year-old sits down on their therapist's couch and complains about losing a relationship with a friend from church when they were 16. They sit on their therapist's couch and talk about their parents. My relationship with her is way more important than your relationship with her. This seemed like a no-brainer to me. So I was stuck having to teach her how to drive. And so we started maybe the same way that many of you started or you started with your own kids. It was just the streets in our neighborhood, learning those streets. And not far from where we live, there's an office park. And most of the days in the afternoons, it was pretty empty and it had streets that she could drive around in. And then there is a freeway that goes out in front of our house nearby. And it's not a super congested freeway or super busy or even all that fast. And so she moved up to that and then her next move was because she worked Sunday mornings in childcare on our West Side campus, that she would drive her and her mother home after worship on Sunday morning. It's a 20 minute drive. The first time she did it, it took her an hour and a half, but she only took the access roads, the feeder roads. And then she graduated from that on up to the freeway. And we did all of those things that you have done or you had done to you when you were learning to drive. She read the book, she knew all the rules, but we sat there, don't forget to check the next lane, use your signal, slow down, speed up, brake, 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 brake. It's all that you have to go through when you're learning how to drive. But now she's gotten all of her hours. And I noticed this past week when she was going to school, because now whenever we go someplace, she just drives, that I was sitting in the passenger seat and she was driving and I was barely paying attention. Like that she had, she does all of the stuff. I was actually sitting there on my phone returning email. And every now and then I'll have to remind her, use your signal. Did you check the next lane? You can't do this, you have to do that. But what's happened over time is that she's learned all of that. And what we're trying to do as we teach her how to drive is to limit the number of tickets that she will get in her lifetime, to not get in a wreck or cause a wreck. This is really made clear to us two weeks ago when a student at her brother's school that's right next door to their parking lot was speeding down the road going 70 plus miles an hour and had a wreck and someone ended up dying. Like we're reminding her of all of these things, all of these things, all of these things. Because what we want is for her to be a good driver and for her to cause as little damage in the world as possible. So she knows the difference between good and bad and what she should do. So if you've been around Ecclesia for the last four weeks, you know that we have been in a series about the Bible and about reading the Bible and how to read the Bible well. 
Because what comes to us, what was handed to you as leather packaged and bound can oftentimes be complicated. There's a history there and a context that not everybody knows. It's got names that are odd that you don't understand. When did all of this happen? And we want people to be able to open the Bible, whether it's in a Bible study or their own personal Bible reading, when someone's teaching the Bible, maybe in your small group, and have a sense of what's happening in the grand scheme of the Bible, like what it is that this book is doing and what God is trying to do through this book. And so today, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what's often confusing and a piece of the scripture that's very often abused, and it's the prophets. There are all of these prophets in the Old Testament or the First Testament, and they have this role in the life of the community, in the life of the people. And because we oftentimes don't know the backstory, the history, and some were sent to Northern Israel, and some were sent to Southern Israel, that we kind of lose it. And so you'll remember that a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that God comes to this man, Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says, Abraham, your people are going to become a great nation. It's going to be so many. It's going to be like stars in the sky. But a problem arises that years and years and years, 25 years goes by and there's still no kid. And they were old when this whole thing started. And still some more time goes by before Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have a son named Isaac. And then when Isaac gets to be about 16, 17, 18, God comes to Abraham and says, it's time for you to sacrifice your son. This is what Pastor Chris talked to you about last week. And almost immediately, in the very beginning of the story, the promise is under threat. But the promise remains. There's a ram in the thicket. Isaac is not sacrificed. And so this promise, this covenant made to Abraham that he would become a great nation and that ultimately that one day the entire world would be saved through Abraham's family is still intact. But there are some hiccups along the way. They end up in Egypt and they multiply in Egypt. They come so many in Egypt that the Pharaoh says, like, we've got to enslave all of these people. And then you get a bunch of stories that you have heard if you've ever been to a VBS ever in your life, all those stories about wandering in the wilderness and about 10 plagues. But the time comes when they finally do make it into the promised land, where they are their own nation. They're their own country. And in the early days of Israel as a nation, they are governed, they are ruled by prophets and judges. And there's one prophet named Samuel who gets to be very old. And it's time for him to transition on to what is next for him. And this is how Samuel tells part of his story. It says, when Samuel was old, he named his sons judges of Israel to rule over the people and be their deliverers. His first son, Joel, and his second son, Abijah, were judges in Beersheba, but they were not like Samuel. They profited from dishonesty, took bribes, and fostered injustice. So the elders of Israel gathered and came to Ramah to tell Samuel, you have grown old, Samuel. 
and your sons do not administer justice the way that you did. Before things worsen, appoint a king to rule over us as other nations have. This request, appoint a king to rule us, bothered Samuel. So he prayed to the eternal one and received an answer. And God says, listen to what the people are asking you to do. It is not a rejection of you. It is a rejection of my rule over them. It is what they have always done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today, rejecting me and serving other gods. Now they are just doing it to you. So listen to what they are asking you to do, but make it plain to them what they are asking. Warn them about what will happen if a king is appointed to rule them. So Samuel told the people who were asking for a king what the eternal one had said. Samuel tells him, if a king rules over you, things will be different from now on. He will make your sons drive his chariots, be his horsemen, and go into battle ahead of his chariot. Your king will select commanders over a thousand and commanders over 50. He will make some of you to plow his fields and collect his harvest. Some of you will be the blacksmiths forging his shields and swords for battle and outfitting his chariots. He will force your daughters to make perfumes, to cook his meals and to bake his bread. He will seize the choices of your fields, vineyards, and olive orchards to give to his courtiers and a tenth of your grain and your vineyards to give to his court eunuchs and servants. The king will ask for, for, ask for will take your slaves, male and female, as his own and put the choices of your donkeys and your young men to do his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You will essentially become his slaves. One day, you will cry for mercy from the eternal one to save you from the king you have chosen for yourselves, but be assured, he will not hear you on that day. The people tell Samuel, we have decided that we will have a king who will rule over us so that we will be like all other nations and will have someone to judge us and to lead us into battle. After Samuel heard, had heard the, their demands, he told the eternal one what they had said. And God says, do as they have asked, give them a king. So Samuel told the people of Israel to go back to their cities until he would call them together to anoint them a king. And so slowly, over time, the kings rule over Israel. And they do exactly what Samuel said that they would do. Because you know this already from history. Every dictator or would-be dictator, every strongman or would-be strongman, every authoritarian, they will say that what they are doing is for you, for your benefit, but it's all really about them. That they will do what is best for them, what glorifies them, that they want you to believe, not that they serve God, they think they are God. And so slowly over time, they do what other nations do. Kings make alliances with other nations, which usually takes the form of the king marrying the daughter of another king. But when you get the daughter, you get the gods that come with the daughter. And so idolatry slips into Israel and the people abandon God. And into this mix, into this time, God raises up prophets. And I don't know what it is 
that you think of when you hear the word prophet? Most of the time, when people hear the word prophet, we think about prophecy. And when we think about prophecy, we think that there's somebody who is going to be able to tell us what's going to happen in the future. Someone who sees something in the future. And you can go home this afternoon and turn on your religious television and there will be someone on there calling themselves a prophet and telling you what's gonna happen and what you need to do. And usually that involves sending them money. But that's not what prophets mostly do. What prophets in the scriptures mostly do is call people back to God. Most of us think of prophets as people who are talking about the future. Prophets in the scripture are talking about the past. They come and they remind Israel that there is a God who brought you out of Egypt. This is the same God who made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with you, and you are God's covenant people. And because you are God's covenant people, there are certain ways that you are supposed to live and be in the world. God is like a parent reminding their kid to use the turn signal. Check the other lane. You know all of this stuff already. Like you've read the book, you've gone through it all. You just have to remember who you are called to be, prophets come to Israel and say, this is how you become a good follower of Jesus. This is how you do less damage in the world. Prophets tell us about who we are invited to be in God, not so much what's going to happen tomorrow. So one of my favorite prophets is Isaiah. And I love Isaiah because I love his call and how he responds to God's call to be a prophet. And so this is how Isaiah 6 captures his story. It says, in the same year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a grand throne way up high with a flowing cape that filled the whole temple. Bright flaming creatures waited on him. Each had six wings, two covering their face, two covering their feet, and two for flying. Like some fiery choir, they would call back and forth continually. Holy, holy, holy is the eternal, the commander of heavenly armies. The earth is filled with his glorious presence. They were so loud that the doorframe shook and the holy house kept filling with smoke. Isaiah says, I am in so much trouble. I'm ruined. I'm just a human being, fallible and stammering. My lips are encrusted with filth and I live among people just like me. But here I am and I have seen with my very own eyes none other than the king, the eternal commander of heavenly armies. Then one of the flaming creatures flew to me holding a red hot ember, which it had taken from God's table, the temple altar with a pair of tongs. The creature held it to my lips. The creature says, look, with the touch of this burning ember on your lips, your guilt is turned away. All your faults and wrongdoings are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord's voice. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. 
a lot of weird stuff happens to prophets. And the prophets do some strange things. One prophet builds a model of Jerusalem and then just lays on his side next to it for over a year. And God tells another one to marry two idolatrous, adulterous women as a demonstration of what Israel and Judah have done to him, how they've treated him. And while there is some difference, prophet to prophet to prophet, about when they lived and where they served and what they said, there are some grand sweeps, some swaths of, all, of things that all the prophets shared together. And so when you read the prophets in the scriptures, they are mostly doing the same thing. And that starts with something like Isaiah, because prophets are sent into the world with a kingdom vision. That it's about God's kingdom that God really has promised that he would save not just Israel, but the whole world. That all the prophets have a vision for what God is doing, not just around them or in their country or through their country, but in the entire world. That it's about kingdom. So I had a little glimpse of this, this past week. This past week, I spent a couple of days uh, sacrificially serving my Lord in Malibu, California. <laughs> this is a view from my hotel room. There are the campus of Pepperdine University. Because I've been invited this year, through this year, multiple times this year, to train young preachers about preaching. And so they said, well, where are they going to be? And they said, well, we're going to do one in Malibu on the campus of Pepperdine and then one on the beach in San Diego, which is next month. And I said, you know what? Here am I, send me. And so Monday I land and I get a rental car and I'm driving to campus and my father calls. And so he's telling me about some family news and I say, well, actually, I'm in Los Angeles right now. And he says, what are you doing there? And I said, well, I'm doing this thing with the Lilly Foundation and this grant money and all this. And he said, on a Monday? I said, yeah. And he goes, your church must really love you. And I said, well, I don't know about all that. But I think we do share a commitment that all of our gifts are for the kingdom, for use in the kingdom. Because I remember very clearly 10 years ago when I was sitting in my lazy boy chair in Temple, Texas, and Pastor Chris called me and he said, we have this opportunity to go multi-site and I want you to come down and be teaching pastor here at Ecclesia. And I told him, you know what? I really kind of like the gig that I got right now. And he said, I understand that. But I think they will understand that this is about the kingdom. Now, I don't know if he believed any of that at all, but it worked on me at the time. That when you read the prophets, they are sent to Israel. They are sent to Judah. But their work is for the world. And part of their work in the world is to speak into a silencing culture. Every prophet that comes along does their work under domination from another. Sometimes it's an ungodly king. Sometimes it's a foreign king. Oftentimes it's the religious systems. And prophets come and talk about something that nobody wants to talk about. Prophets come and talk about sin. 
and nobody wants to talk about sin. Like my friend Brian preaches in the Midwest and one of his church members came to him and asked, why don't you talk about sin more often? And he said, okay, you tell me what sin you're dealing with and I'll preach about it. And nobody wants that. We're all really great about people talking about someone else's sin. We don't want anyone talking about our sin. And you don't need me to tell you this because you've had an experience in your life where you've had a conversation with somebody that you love and they were doing something that was damaging to them or damaging to other people. And they have looked at you and said something like, well, why don't you support me? And you thought, I am supporting you. I'm supporting you from doing something stupid. You just don't recognize I'm supporting you. Because even now, just like in the time of the prophets, we live in a culture where love is seen as sustaining someone's damaging behavior and it's anti-love to say that that's damaging behavior. And prophets look into the eyes of the people and say, what you are doing is wrong. That it hurts people and it hurts you. There's a prophet named Nathan who walks into King David after David has committed adultery and says, you are the man who did this. And I think one of the lost invitations in this era for the church is to be people who still believe that there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. But you can only do it if you receive God's word like Isaiah receives God's word. Because Isaiah has this encounter with God. And his first response isn't, wow, the people of Israel really need to get their act together. His first response is, I am a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips that before we speak into the lives of other people, that we have a genuine encounter with God where we are changed. And all the prophets also call for justice. In my office at home, there's a very large book entitled The Writings and Speaking of Martin Luther King Jr. And it's just filled with speeches, and sermons, because I'm the kind of cool guy who sits at home and reads sermons. And as I've read those sermons over the years, I've noticed something. I don't know that Martin Luther King ever preached a sermon that wasn't from the prophets. And some of you will remember that I have a dream speech. And one of the lines in I have a dream is let righteousness roll, fall down like waters. Well, justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a ma mighty flowing stream. Well, that's from Amos, who was a prophet. In the scriptures is the prophets who call for justice and not just justice for some people. Justice for all people, especially the oppressed and the poor and the disenfranchised, the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. But in our world, if you advocate right now for the foreigner, 
you're more likely to be told that you're ungodly than godly. But this is what prophets do. They say to us, this behavior has ultimate circumstances, consequences that cannot be avoided. And if the world is to become a better place, you all, God's people, have to become better people. You have to become good drivers. You have to remember what you know to do and do it. And here's the good news. The prophets who are sent into the world with a kingdom vision, who speak holiness into a silencing culture, and who call for justice, every vocation of the prophets is available to you. that prophets do not go into a trance and behave like they're getting a contact high at Woodstock, that there's nothing that the prophets do that you can't do. And this is why the apostle Paul, generations and generations later, can sit down and say about people who follow Jesus that you, you are a priesthood of all believers. And that's why Micah, in his own time, could write one of the most famous passages of Scripture where he says that God, God has told you, O mortals, what is good in his sight. What else does the eternal ask of you but to live justly and to love kindness and to walk with your true God in all humility? The prophets are inviting you and inviting me to be people who trust and remember God's covenant. And the one space that they predominantly talk in their time about what's going to happen in the future is that they do tell us that God will be faithful to God's promise and a savior will come. And he will be the perfect king and priest and prophet. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.